You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. It's the Spain and Fitz podcast. Obviously, you're here because you want to get all the Spain and Fitz fun that you possibly can, but make sure you take the time to rate, review, subscribe, do all of those fun, good things, because tonight, like many nights, you get a little bit of exclusive here. We talked to several people in today's show, notably Lindsey Vaughn. Well, you get a little bit more of that conversation with Lindsey, plus you get some exclusive line info, and we usually do this on Fridays, where Felica helps us break everything down, the bear. Chris Felica gives us some of his best bets for the weekend. Well, because we don't have a show for Friday, we decided to throw that here in the podcast for you. It's the only way to get it. So remember... Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your enemies, tell everybody to go ahead and check out the Spain and Fitz podcast wherever you get your podcast every single day. Now, let's have some Spain and Fitz fun. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Clay Thompson obviously out at this point. And, you know, I think unfortunately for all of us, it ruins one of what was going to be to me the more interesting storylines coming into the NBA season where suddenly, hey, as good as the Lakers are and as good as the Clippers are expected to be, don't sleep on the Warriors. We could all say that. Now it's much harder to make that argument as we now know Clay with the Achilles injury is going to miss the season. Yeah, to me, I'm torn because obviously the reaction is first to feel awful for Clay, to go through a destructive injury like the ACL tear and to be 500 something days since he was last able to play working his way back with the enthusiasm around that team of having the number two pick and, and getting back guys from injury. Um, so it starts there um, to, to then have this second injury and what that might do to his kinetic chain. Recovering from one is bad enough, but to now have both legs be structurally unsound and the likelihood of another injury much higher it's also just this team. Like This was a dynastic squad that went through the interesting development of adding KD and then losing him, the multiple injuries. And so it felt okay to exhale for a moment last season. You lose Steph to injury. You know you're not going to be great. Clay is out. And you're just patient enough to say, listen, we, we can get a high draft pick and get right back at it with one season off and right back there. And now... There's a lot more question marks. There are going to be in massive luxury tax hell adding Kelly Oubre for a team that might not contend. And and I don't know if I'm as out on them as everybody else's fits to people who are saying I see them seventh, eighth, ninth in the West. I think we've we've been a little bit asleep on how great they were and we've forgotten a little bit, but it's going to look different if they find their way back to contention. You mentioned Kelly Oubre, and uh, it looks like they're out there trying to get uh, their hands on Kelly Oubre. Uh, as Bobby Marks tweeted out, Golden State's tax bill currently $66 million. Again, that's just their luxury tax bill on top of everything. Mm-hmm. If they add Kelly Oubre, it increases to $134 million. So $14.4 million of salary, another $68 million in taxes. So it's an $82 million increase. And it only leaves me wondering, Sarah, how desperate that spending feels like there's this moment where are you throwing good cash after good return or you're just throwing cash at trying to remain relevant in a West that looks stacked and making sure that you don't fall out of the conversation entirely because I'm not sure that I can find an 82 and a half million dollar justification for Kelly Uber Jr. Yeah, it's interesting too because he's a he's he's a guy that makes sense now as a, as a young wing player, um, good depth that they need, and he's on an expiring deal, so it's a kind of one season that they can see what they've got and if it fits before they would bring him uh, in long term. But it is an expensive experiment, and to your point, um, this is a team that is throwing money. I mean, it could be a $350 million roster by the time this is done. $350 million that might not even be a contending roster. The problem is is that they have a massive 
almost brand new stadium that's going to be empty, right? They're trying to fight for the ability to have uh, a 50% occupancy or at least sell some tickets. But this is a place that makes so much money. If I took a tour there, Fitz, you can have a suite there year round that's over a million dollars. To have oh this suite. God. You can go there when there isn't a game night and just watch a movie in your suite. They have private wine lockers where you can keep your favorite wines so that when you're at the game. I mean, it's a beautiful place and they can make a ton of money back on the kind of Silicon Valley rich folks that are going to go there and spend the money. But how long are we in this COVID mess before they can start making some of that back? And so to your point, I don't know if it's desperate because I think they do want to capitalize on still having that core and looking back at the team, even before Kevin Durant got there, that was running circles around teams and creating a new style of basketball. Uh, but without Clay, it just looks different. And you add James Wiseman, which is great because they've needed to address issues at the center position. But how does that change their style of play? And are, st- are they still a really difficult matchup if they become a little bit more traditional in terms of going inside out? Well, and to that end, NBA TV analyst Greg Anthony, also a former UNLV superstar, was on the Max Kellerman show earlier today and talked about what he thinks of the Warriors' title shots without Clay. You just have to feel for them. You have to feel for that team as well. And I, and I heard you talking about them. Listen, they're gonna, they're not gonna have a chance to compete for a championship without Clay Thompson. There's no right. way to right. sugarcoat that. Hmm. And, and I mean, that's a. It's a bold statement uh, to your point, though. You know, I think there is a fine, there's a happy medium in all of this. Like, we can acknowledge that Clay is a huge loss. I don't know that, like, and I always say the only thing worse than being bad is becoming irrelevant. I don't think that the Warriors are sort of teetering on the edge of becoming irrelevant in the NBA conversation. I do think that they take a massive hit. So maybe, in my mind, they don't have a title shot, but they still have a shot of being a good playoff team that can go and make some noise. And and that, in and of itself, is better than nothing while you try and figure out if and when Clay Thompson can come back and what they look like with him. Yeah, I think it's not all or nothing um, with this team. A, a lot of people are sort of expediting their funeral, in my opinion. Steph's not that old. Yeah, he's had some injury issues, but he's got years ahead of him. Um, to me, it feels like it's been a little while since we really saw the Warriors cook, and so we forget what it tastes like when they do. So people are kind of out and ready to move on or rebuild. Like, Clay is certainly a question mark, and the multiple severe injuries are a question mark in terms of what he looks like when he comes back. But even if they aren't winning next year, that doesn't mean that the landscape doesn't change, that they don't acquire new pieces, that this isn't still a core to build around. Well, and I think one of the more unfortunate things is any thought that we were going to sort of build our way up to a Warriors versus KD final may have just taken a Mm. massive blow if that's Mm. the drama uh, that everybody was hunting for. And obviously that's what the NBA is built on, uh, drama. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. We'll head over to the Shell Penzo performance line where we're joined by Vic Tafer from The Athletic. And Vic, I love the fact that we were able to get you on. We appreciate your time. Obviously, uh, I want to get your thoughts on some Raiders COVID issues, but let's start with the big news that we've been talking about. Clay Thompson is out for the Warriors, and obviously your Bay Area history and the work you've already done in that area covering the team in general. So uh, when you look at the, the Warriors without Clay Thompson, the, the narrative seems to be it's dire for them. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think definitely you look at maybe a possible, you know, title contender next year, that's no longer probably on the table anymore. So they, I don't, I'll make some moves. My kids, what, Kelly Obre, I guess you're talking about right now. But definitely not Clay Thompson, definitely one of the most beloved figures in, in the Bay Area and, and for a long time also. So I think it's definitely a crushing blow for Warriors fans and for sports fans in the Bay Area in general. But, um, yeah, but definitely the, your goals definitely have to be shifted. I think you have to re- reassess where you are as a franchise. 
it seems like there was a pretty wide range of opinions on this team anyway, even before the Clay Thompson injury. I, for one, think people are sleeping on on the team and, and not, you know, prisoner of the moment, kind of forgetting how great they were. Um, but now you're kind of out on this even being a, a year that they can contend, even with Wiseman and Wiggins and whatever else they can add. Yeah, I mean, Seth Curry's back, and obviously Jeremiah Green's got that special ingredient that they, they need so much, but I think Clay Thompson definitely was, you know, I guess the, the stir that kind of makes the drink you know, taste even better. So I just think that it's going to be hard to have you know, the Splash Brothers are no longer, they're no longer, you know, brothers. It's just, it's just one splash. You need more than, it's a bad analogy, but you need more than one splash. <laughs> um, but, now uh, it's more just yeah, ash. Yeah, so it's definitely, you got, you got to reassess, definitely. <laughs> We're talking to Vic Taper from The <laughs> Athletics. So uh, the other thing that uh, is obviously on everybody's mind is COVID and uh, the Raiders seem to find themselves, my beloved Raiders, find themselves in this situation yet again as uh, they've had a slew of defensive players that are now being held out of practice because of close contact tracing. So what can you tell us about sort of how they got to this point? It's a good question. Um, uh, Cleveland Furl um, tested positive, and apparently um, not, not one, not two, not three, but uh, seven players were in close contact with him, and now they're all on this new, like three weeks ago, they had this new um close contact high-risk list, which you have to be in the COVID list for five days. You have to take five days of, of test, battery of tests, and if you pass them all, if you're negative all five days, then you're cleared to play again. So these uh, seven players can, if they all tested negative today, so if it continues on the rest of the week, they can be back in time for Sunday's game. I'm curious what the conversation is locally and around that team, uh, because they have the second highest number of players affected by COVID this season, trailing only the Jags. We've heard some comments from uh, Coach Gruden that at times make it feel like maybe he's not as uh, respectful of protocol as he could be. Does it feel like the Raiders are not doing enough to prevent these things from happening? It doesn't. When I was at the facility uh, for training camp a lot, if they, they're going through all the steps and they, they seem like they have everything lined up. But obviously there's something that's not quite connecting because they've been fine now. I think it's $1.2 million of the league for all their various offenses, and, and it seems like the cases keep piling up. So I'm not sure if it's something going on after players go home from the facility, but definitely there's some kind of a disconnect because the numbers, like you mentioned, are really high. And to have you know, seven guys in close contact with someone who tested positive is not the way this is supposed to work. So um, something has definitely gone wrong here in, in, the, in the mix. So at some point, my expectation, I guess, would be if I own a team that has been fined over a million dollars and I'm looking around at guys that you know are getting themselves in this situation, I think I'm probably going to have a come-to-Jesus talk with everybody. I mean, how, how much, how vocal can or has Mark Davis been in trying to change whatever's happening? I talked to him last week. He's convinced they're doing all they can. He thinks that John Gruden's serious about it and the teams, you know, all the protocols they're following, all the guidelines they've done. And he thinks that... Um, I don't know if you would call it a bunch of flute cases, but he thinks that they are doing everything they can. And I mean, so it's hard really to just to pinpoint where he can probably find a, you know, a place to make a change or have things go better because he thinks it's going uh, pretty smoothly. So obviously, there's something, there's some kind of hole which he has to find. But at this point, he isn't not quite sure where it is. I'm curious at Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio, talking to Vic Tafer of the Athletic. You can follow him at Vic Tafer. Um, at what point do teams lobby for the opportunity to move a game if they feel like they are just too affected to put up right product? And is there any is there any leeway there, or is it all based on the numbers and who's available? 
I think that's a good question because I'm not sure the teams really know what to do because you know, when the Warriors went through this the first time against the Bucks in the Bucks game, uh, I guess it was almost a month ago, they had the five on linemen. One guy, Trent Brown, tested positive, and the four guys were in close contact. So the whole starting of the line was off the whole week before that game, and they thought there was a good chance it might get moved back, and it wasn't. That's when kind of the league kind of made a, a little pivot where they said, you know what, we're going to stop trying to move games back. We're going to have this you know high-risk uh, reserve list and try to get guys you know different kind of protocols. So they kind of changed gears at that point, and that way the Raiders thought that game should have moved back, and it wasn't. So now they're kind of resigned to this is what it is. They're going to play this game pretty much whatever happens. So you got to go through these practices and, and have a plan A and a plan B. So, Vic, today Raiders defensive coordinator Paul Gunther had some comments that had fans particularly outraged, it felt like, on social media. as uh, He said it's really tough not having the players available. Not sure how you prepare for the Chiefs, even if you are healthy. Uh, it, it had a, a strange tone. What was your takeaway from it? Yeah, I think he misspoke. I, mean, I don't think he. I don't think he believes he had no chance to beat the Chiefs. I think obviously it's tough, and he's definitely going through a ringer, going through you know through these Zoom practices. You have guys at their, in their homes going through the things you want them to do, which normally you would do, you know, in uh, in practice. So I think it's tough for him, and I think I'm sure what he tells the players is not what he tells the media in Zoom on the Thursday. So I know fans heard those reactions, those comments, and they reacted like. The guy doesn't believe in us, but I'm sure he does. I'm sure he misspoke. I think he's been working pretty hard. I mean, actually, you know, they, they beat the Chiefs already this year because of Gunther's uh, game plan. So I think um, we'll have something kind of dialed up and see how it works on Sunday. They did beat the Chiefs. They have some really big wins. I don't think nationally, and this is coming from someone who whose co-host is a Raiders fan and could definitely <laughs> try to shoehorn them into the show a whole lot more than he does. I don't think we're talking about them enough and really how much of a contender they can be. What's your ceiling for this Raiders team? Yeah, I think the offense is really good. Like you mentioned, I think maybe the more the focus has been on these COVID fines and, and John Gruden's you know, sound bites, but he's done a really good job with his offense this year. They, they can they can run, they can pass. I mean, Derek Carr definitely is very comfortable in year three of the Gruden. He kind of uh, it's kind of over his injuries he had a few years ago, and now he's running the ball again. Kind of uh, you know, his toughness is always in question, but this year it looks like you know a very tough MVP guy like he was uh, in 2016. So they have a lot of tools in offense. Even one with their two tackles being out the last two weeks, which is pretty hard to do. If your two second tackles are out and you're 2-0, that's a pretty good sign that your offense is in good hands. You guys can follow him on Twitter, at Vic Tafer. Obviously, read him on The Athletic. Vic, as always, we appreciate your time, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for the insight. All right, guys. Take care. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's time for a six-pack. A six-pack of games with Spain and Fitz. That's right. Fitz, you always start us off with a little college action, so why don't you go first with your college pick for the week? Well, you look, and the college games are getting more and more sparse for the same reasons we've talked about so many times with the number of cancellations every single week, but I always give us the big ABC game of the week, and the ABC game of the week this week is Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, Look, I think if you'd have looked at this game a month ago, it'd look different. There's a lot of injuries on both sides of this. Key injuries, most imp- importantly to me, is what Spencer Rattler looked like, the quarterback for Oklahoma. He did have some weirdness with his hip last week, but I still think if he's healthy, they roll. So I'm taking Oklahoma over Oklahoma State. And this is also your reminder you can check out Countdown to Game Day Saturday mornings and the college football show Saturday nights. That's your way to hang out with me and watch some digital content in the ESPN app and Twitter for college football. Excellent plug. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and start my picks with uh, where I always begin, and that's with the Jets. (laughs) I know that the Jets sometime are going, well, 
I was going to say sometime we're going to have success. I, I don't know that that's a fair assessment, and I don't know for sure that that's ever going to happen. But at some point, the Jets are going to put something together and get a dub, and it's, it's not going to be this week. Uh, the Chargers are a good team. The Chargers somehow, despite losing so many games by one score and getting as close as possible and failing, will not find a way to fail this weekend. I'm healthily and confidently picking the Chargers over the Jets. Uh, look, I also picked that game, and I joked with the staff as we were putting the show together that the easiest part of pick six is there are certain teams I know I can just pick against. And, in fact, I got so anxious about it that I put the Jets in the dock mon- multiple times. So uh, I'm also uh, I'm with you. I'm taking the Chargers over the Jets. I don't think it's even going to be a close game, frankly. So kudos to the Chargers. They get that one easily. Uh, secondly, I'm going to go with uh, the, the, the folks that we just saw taking on the Chargers in the Miami Dolphins. I feel Ooh. confident that the continued development of Tua Tungavaloa is going to be uh, fun to watch for all of us, and it's going to result in in, in a burgeoning, successful di- uh, Miami team, especially with that defense there as well. And even though I've been reticent to pick the, uh, the, the Denver Broncos because they've surprised me a couple times where I thought that they wouldn't put up much of a fight and they've ended up winning games or getting very close, I still feel much better about the Dolphins team, and I'm taking the Dolphins. You know, I, I was not brave enough to pick that one, but I, I'm mm. with you. The The Broncos are a turnover machine, and that Miami defense is good. So I think they're going to be uh, – that's a really good pick by you. All right, I'll rip the Band-Aid off. For anyone that doesn't know, we have to pick our favorite teams every week. That's one of the rules here, which means I have to pick this Raiders-Chiefs game. And, look, the Raiders can control the line of scrimmage. The Raiders are going to be able to run the football, I believe, all of those things. Uh, the, the Chiefs are without a couple of starting offensive linemen. That can be significant due to COVID issues. So I want to look at it and say the Raiders are going to control the clock and they'll be able to do the unthinkable. But – I'm not a maniac. So I understand the way this game's actually going to play out. Uh, unfortunately, the Raiders may have poked the belly of the beast and just made the Chiefs mad now with basically their entire defense not practicing all week. That's already the weakness for the team. The Chiefs are going to make Sunday night very long and miserable for me. I'm taking Kansas City over the Raiders. Uh, for all the reasons that you said, and because I think it's tough to beat a great team twice, and Kansas City comes into this game with a desire to avenge what happened earlier and that dumb bus story, which is one of the dumbest bulletin board material stories I've ever heard. I also was particularly not a fan of Gruden's frustration over it, too. It was just everyone played up that story way too much. But because of all the things you said and because it's tough to beat the Chiefs twice, I'm picking Kansas City over the Raiders. Oh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. What do you got next? Well, since we have to pick our own teams, uh, I'm going to pick the Bears to not lose this week. How's that uh-huh. for a pick? Uh, all right, all right. They're a on a bye. Week. They're on a bye. I'm not allowed to pick them, but it was going to be the only time I felt really great about my pick of the Bears. <laughs> and they were one of my two misses last week, and now you're inching ever closer to my record. I started out hot, and you are catching up. I'm 41-12, and 12, not too shabby, but you're 39-13-1. and 1. So mm. uh, it is a dead heat. Uh, so since I can't pick my Bears, I'm picking the Browns over the Eagles. The Eagles are the other team that let me down in last week's picks. Don't ask me why I put my faith in any team from that division, but I did. Uh, and the Eagles let me down, so I'm confidently picking the Browns over Philly. You know, I love that you say confidently because I also picked this game. I don't know how confident I am on it, but I really? can tell you this confidently. 
Every single week, I think this is the week that Carson Wentz is going to look like the Carson of old and that somehow the Eagles will get it done and that somehow talent will prevail. And, and, and every week, I'm wrong. I'm Charlie Brown kicking the football on this one every week. So if the Eagles somehow stun the Browns this, on this particular game, I'm just going to kick an Eagles fan in the shin somewhere. I don't know how socially distanced. I will find a way. I may wait till 2022. But, yes, I'm also picking the Browns over the Eagles. But I'm a little puckered up over that one. A little puckered up. All right, what you got next? All right, so next up, this one was easy for me. I, I put the Texans in the list of teams you could just pick mm. to lose constantly. The Patriots taking on the Texans. Patriots coming off the big monsoon win, but this is less about New England, more about the dumpster fire that the Texans have become. So even though I love Deshaun Watson, uh, that team is just not good, and the Patriots are at least okay. Okay beats just not good. Patriots beat the Texans. I got puckered up over that one because I see the talent on the Texans, and I wonder if they'll ever break through even though they're not a good team. And the Patriots are too inconsistent for me. So I avoided that. And instead, I went with another team that you can consistently pick again that I have renamed the WTF, uh, the Washington (laughs) football team. Change a couple of the letters around and you have a more accurate description of what's happening over there. I'm picking the Bengals over Washington. I like what I've seen from the Bengals, even though there's still a lot of room to grow and they are a flawed team. I still think they are much better than the WTF. I love that, by the way. We've got to make t-shirts for it. Yes. All right. Uh, my last one is also an easy one. The Jags stink. The Steelers don't. There we go. There's your analysis. Oh, well, I picked uh, that st- one, too. So I guess we're <laughs> that was strong dismount. Uh, excellent analysis. That's what the people come here for. Steelers uh, are great. The Jags aren't. Jags stink. Steelers good. Make pick good. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. So always great to have a chance to talk to Lindsey Vaughn. But when we're talking dogs, I think everyone will know that I am in heaven. I have one at my feet right now. Who knows where the other two are? But uh, you're hosting a new show, Lindsey, called The Pack on Amazon Prime Video. And you're hosting it with your dog, Lucy. So my first question, the first thing that came to mind is you have three dogs. How did you pick Lucy as the co-host and how do the other two dogs feel about it? (laughs) I've actually been asked that question a lot, and, you know, Lucy is fortunately the best traveler of the bunch because she's obviously smaller. The other two are about 100 pounds each, um, and my boys are, they're very mischievous. They've they've uh, recently gotten into a little altercation with the porcupine, so <laughs> oh, no. Lucy's, Lucy's a better pick for sure, but um, don't tell Lucy, but Leo is actually my favorite, so. Uh, if he were travel size, he'd be with me. Leo is the is it a Rottweiler? No, he's a, a boxer, American Staffordshire Terrier mix. Okay, nice, nice. And um, amongst other things, he's a lot of other breeds as well. He's a very mixed young man. <laughs> this show looks so fun. Um, it's a human and their dog companion competing, almost like the Amazing Race, but uh, half dog, half human. And you go to all these different countries and places. I have to imagine this was filmed well before the pandemic. Yeah, it was actually not that long before, but thankfully we got it done uh, just in the nick of time. But, you know, it was so fun to be able to travel the world with all of these dogs and and obviously people. But, you know, Lucy and I have been traveling for a while because, you know, while I was on the World Cup, Lucy was with me for the last few years. But you know, this gave us an opportunity to go to places we've never been. Um, you know, Costa Rica has no ski resort, so that was a fun one to check mm-hmm. off the list. And um, uh, Mexico City as well. So it was uh, it was quite the adventure. And, uh, you know, for the other dogs, quite the challenge as well. It was 
uh, definitely a test and uh, uh, definitely showed their skill in so many ways that I think people underestimate with dogs. Well, I watched just the trailer and I got so much wanderlust because we can't travel right now. So not only am I looking at all these beautiful places that I can't go, but the worst part of traveling, the only bad part of traveling is being away from your dog. So I'm I'm totally with these people as they keep saying throughout the show, I can't believe I'm doing this with my best friend. It's just, it looks so fun. Um, Was there anything to the kind of dog that went? Did they have to be particularly well-trained? Were they, you know, above average? Like the average person and their dog probably wouldn't fare very well in these challenges. <laughs> no, literally none of them were trained. Um, I mean, there were what? quite a few rescues in there. <laughs> yeah, they did. They, all they did was an orientation in Los Angeles so that they were familiar with the kind of tasks that they would have on the show, like scent training and herding and fetching and pulling um, I mean, like Duchess, for example, is just a normal rescue dog that lives at home with a family of four, you know, black lab, typical everyday American dog. And, you know, turns out to be an incredible, uh, in- incredible at all of these different challenges. So none of them, you know, were particularly skilled. They just all learned very quickly. And I think what, you know, and really what the show is all about is the bond that they have with their partner, you know each challenge you need to be able to communicate with your dog and these people have such a strong connection that it's really really plain to see and also dogs shockingly enough they were they knew when the competition was on you know you could see it in their faces mm-hmm. they were whenever the challenge was happening the dogs were all barking it was it was quite incredible to see uh Lindsay Vaughn with us here on the Spain and Fitz podcast uh I'm curious as a host in that moment, like you just said, the dogs knew when things were on. For you, this is not something where you can have 11 takes every time. I imagine, you know, especially with <laughs> no. dogs, you can't just keep redoing things. Like, you got to get in while you can and you got to hit it, right? So how much stress was there for you as your first, like, real hosting gig? It was really stressful, um, I, I have to say, but I actually really liked it. It, it really reminded me of sea racing in the sense that you know, as you said, you don't have, you know, 10, 11 takes. You have to get it the first time because it's essentially a, a taped live show. You know, this is a competition. You, you have to nail it the first time because all of these contestants are waiting for you to say the right thing, thing so they can start and finish their challenge. So um, I liked it. The adrenaline was, was really high. I have to say that, you know, initially I I wasn't the best at memorizing lines, but mm-hmm. I definitely studied hard and I, I picked up on it pretty quickly. And by the end, I was I had it nailed down. But um, I thrive off the adrenaline and, and being coached. You know, I, I was lucky enough to have an executive producer, Jay Beanstalk, who really, you know, was a was a huge help and always com- uh, gave me confidence of what I was doing. And that obviously uh, helped me tremendously in the show. I'm looking at this trailer and I'm seeing, um, you know, what looks like a soccer challenge and playing the piano and maybe a fashion show. And it's all different dogs. Like you mentioned, there's a black lab type dog that looks like maybe uh, an English setter, a retriever type. There's small dogs, there's chunky dogs, there's skinny dogs. Was there an effort in making the show to make it so that it wasn't beneficial to be bigger, stronger, faster or different in every way? Are there kind of challenges that fit some of the dogs better than others? Um, you know, it, it was very equal. They they definitely made sure that, you know, no matter what the size, but the challenge fit the dog, you know, so if they were meant to carry something, it was proportionate to their size. So you really didn't have an advantage 
um, you know, with what type of dog you had. And we wanted it to be that way so that, you know, it was fair. We want to showcase every different kind of dog. You know, it wouldn't be that much fun if it was all golden retrievers. You know, we want to show versatility and, and uh, you know, have that, have that variation in the different breeds. But, um, you know, I think that some of the challenges were definitely beneficial for, for, you know, for some and others were beneficial for others. So it just depended on what the challenge was. And that's why, you know, obviously by the end, you know, you see uh, what dog picked up on things a little bit quicker than the others. Yeah. Uh, it's And very different from the amazing race where they fight with each other and they're screaming and they're right. frustrated because it's your dog and you're just, they're doing their best. And if they're not doing it well, it's probably your fault. Cause that's how training works for dogs. <laughs> I know my dogs are yeah, spoiled as hell. So it's like, no matter whether oh, exactly. I, I'd no. like to be mad at them, I'm like, I did this to you. You are the way you are. I know. <laughs> I know. PK always gets frustrated with me because I just, I can't say no. And he's like, you really need to start training your dogs better. I'm like, but I can't. I, I love them so, so much. But I mean, again, this is, like you said, it's totally different than The Amazing Race. It's a very positive and uplifting show. You know, there's never a moment where there's drama and bickering. You know, everyone is very supportive. Um, and it's not, it is a competition, but it's, again, it's really about the relationship that people have with their dogs, which Obviously, anyone who loves dogs can relate to. Lindsay Vaughn with me here on Spain and Fitz podcast. You just mentioned PK. I'm, first of all, extremely jealous that you happened to find a job that required you to travel the world right before the shutdown. Like, how grateful <laughs> must you be that you did all this Very amazing lucky. stuff beforehand? Um, but also, bad timing for someone who's engaged. What's the plan here with this wedding? You've been engaged twice to each other now because he asked and you asked, which I love that aspect of it. Are we planning? <laughs> Are we doing something small? Are we waiting till we have the big, huge thing? Um, we were supposed to get married in July, so, mm. uh, you know, pretty disappointed that it didn't happen. Uh, and, you know, now, obviously, with COVID, we, we don't know. We have no idea, literally, when it, when it could or, you know, when we would want it to happen. Because, you know, obviously, we want our families to be there. And his family's in Canada. My family's scattered across the U.S. And one of my sisters is uh, living in Italy. She's married to an Italian. So, it's not easy at all for us to get everyone together. So we, we were just going to wait. We're, we're not in a rush, you know. We've got the rest of our lives. So, you know, what does a, a couple extra months make? Yeah. And then, you know, you can invite all these dogs now. You have a whole bunch more guests. I know. I have a, I have a lot of new friends. Uh, <laughs> I, I will be very happy with that. I'm not sure. If PK, for PK, I think three is enough. But, um, you know, <laughs> I always said him. you could have more. <laughs> Too much yeah. complaining from PK. Get it together. Um, although I still owe PK because at the ESPYs two years ago, I changed into flip-flops and the club wouldn't let me in. And then he walked by and he said, okay, just let her in. She's fine. So he saved me and my flip-flops, uh, which was very nice was of him. Nice. Yeah. He's um, a gentleman. He is. He is. I, I did really appreciate it. I was pissed. I, I was like, I'm, I Ubered all the way in the middle of Hollywood so you can turn me down because I got flip-flops on in my ESPYs dress. Uh, but that's a story for another time. Uh, this hosting gig... <laughs> Is one of the big things that you've done since retiring, is this what you want to do? Do you have any idea what you want to do? It's always wild for athletes because they're so young when they start fresh. Yeah, I mean, it's basically I'm, I'm doing a career change at, at 36 years old. And, um, you know, I, I had planned, you know, obviously, you know, as an athlete that your career is coming to an end. And I've always planned on it and planned ahead and really been strategic about you know how I do things so that when I do retire I 
you know, have things to do. But then when I retired, I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, it just things kind of happened to me in a different way than I expected. Um, and I, I, I love the show. I think it's a great first step for me. I hope that the show continues on and that I'm able to continue hosting because I think it's amazing. But, you know, I have a lot of other things that I want to um, continue working on. I just started a production company. I'm doing a documentary with the Olympic Channel and, and Frank Marshall on uh, my hero, Peekaboo Street, which I'm very, very excited to do. Yeah. Um, I'm, you know, I've got companies that I'm, you know, building, working with, um, head, unique goggles, you know, Under Armour, obviously Project Rock with The Rock. Um, so a lot of things going on. I just, you know, I, I want to narrow it down eventually, but um, I'm just kind of taking it day by day at the moment. Well, I can only imagine with the character of PK combined with you, what you guys will do once he's got some free time on his hands, too. So, oh, yeah. Uh, the That's media be empire. Another ball game. <laughs> yeah. The reality shows, the co hosted late night show. I mean, there's so many opportunities. Uh, thank you so much for chatting with me. I'm, I can't wait to watch this show. It seems so fun, although I did get mildly depressed uh, watching the, the, the uh, premiere or the uh, trailer because of the travel. So I'll have to power through that uh, frustration and watch all the beautiful spaces that you got to go to. Um, have fun with the rest of the pressers and, uh, and, and good luck with the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoy the show. Seriously. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and it's time for Straight Talk, brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. Uh, the Clay Thompson News rumored last night uh, a blue check, who was actually the first to uh, announce Rudy Gobert having uh, coronavirus back in March, uh, was the first to, to point out that it was an Achilles tear, and that was confirmed today. Um, that's left a lot of people giving their takes on what it means for the Warriors this season and Clay long term. Fitz, I don't know if when we talked about it earlier in the show, if I got for sure your opinion on do you think it's been too long since we saw the Warriors firing on, firing at all cylinders and people have forgotten what they can do without the traditional two or three superstar lineup? Or are you of the opinion that this is going to be sort of a lost year? Well, I don't think it's going to be a lost year at all. I think they're still a playoff team. They're just not a title championship level team. And unfortunately, you know, I I do think that we've all slept a little bit on Steph and Tremont. I mean, those are two players that can absolutely. And what was supposed to be last year, the year of the duo, why can't that duo have tremendous success? But without Clay, uh, it feels like they take a huge, huge step back. I was really excited for the potential to watch the Warriors go out and just remind everybody how stinking good they can be. Uh, by coming through and, and going sort of guns blazing. And they also have another unknown. I mean, James Wiseman uh, going to the team seems like it could make a ton of sense, right? But we have no idea what that's going to look like. Like the draft, the NBA uh, draft is such a just absolute crapshoot to me that it makes it hard for, for me in my mind to, to really rely on any player that's coming out of the draft. So I think the Warriors have now found themselves sort of a four or five seed sort of team that's going to be out there and be some fun to watch, but no longer a serious part of the title con- conversation. Well, and it's a crapshoot all the time. I mean, I, I do think that smaller rosters, being able to see them play collegiately, um, usually we can tell within a certain reasonable doubt uh, how much a player is, is going to succeed at, at the professional level and how much they're going to add to their team. Not always. Of course, there are busts, but more so than, say, football. Uh, but this year, we haven't seen a lot of these players. They played abroad or they didn't have a March Madness, which is where a lot of them usually step up and show who they are. It's been over a year for most of them since they played. So 
Um, I, I do well, think... And Wiseman, to that point, Sarah, you know, James Wiseman yeah. obviously was projected to play at Memphis, and he played a little bit at Memphis, but then there were eligibility issue questions yeah. because of some money that was given, and he just... Let, like So Wiseman going into the season was supposed to be so good that Memphis had a shot at the national championship, and instead their season kind of went off the rails, and we saw very little of James Wiseman. So hard for me to look at Wiseman and be like, he's going to be this epic difference right. maker. When well, we and ball. they have the quickest turnaround of any rookies ever, right? They have the longest wait for the draft, and then they got to get started in three weeks. So yeah. I-, I can't remember who it was, but I saw one of the players uh, last night uh, tweet a new draft pick. All right, pick you up at the airport tomorrow. And it's like, all right, kid, let's go. We got we to gotta get into it. Um, so there are a lot of question marks, I think, for the Warriors and what's next. And, of course, tons of sympathy headed in the direction of Clay Thompson, who's a really well-liked and respected guy. Meanwhile, there's a bunch else going on, and that includes some of the things that we saw happening before the draft, which included the Bucks trying to add pieces around Giannis Antetokounmpo to help keep him at least for a couple years, if not for that full massive option that would keep him in Milwaukee for a long time. Well, Bogdan Bogdanovich was part of that deal, and there was an expectation of a sign-and-trade and, and, and all this stuff going down. Now it's come into question as he might enter free agency and even an investigation in to potential collusion. Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN NBA Insider, was on with KG&Z this morning talking about the deal. Milwaukee and Sacramento negotiated uh, a trade that they were going to bring to Bogdanovich once free agency started tomorrow at 6 o'clock. Uh, and, and if the Bucks and Bogdanovich could uh, make the money work on a new contract, he's a restricted free agent again, in Sacramento, then they could have completed it. Essentially, uh, the teams felt like uh, they didn't have a pathway here uh, to wait and get this done by Friday. Uh, there was just too many obstacles in the way. Bogdanovich uh, is going to go out on the market on Friday as a restricted free agent. They, Sacramento could negotiate a sign and trade with another team. Bogdanovich could go get an offer sheet uh, that would then bring that back to the Kings and see if they match it. So, uh, you know, the Bucks, you know, can start to look elsewhere and see if there's a way. Uh, to improve their team. Obviously, they brought in Drew Holiday, and Bogdanovich would be a big addition for them. So, Fitz, what do you make of this? Because there's also been some reports that, that Bogdan said, you know, he wants to play with Giannis. Um, how, what's the likelihood that this ends up with him playing for the Bucks? And, you know, uh, it, do you think that there's actually any repercussions if there were conversations going on when there weren't supposed to be? That seems pretty common in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, that's the dangerous slope you go down. I mean, if you punish Milwaukee for doing what, at least in perception, you know, LeBron's been doing forever with wherever he wants to play, right? Like, that can, that can that's a slippery slope to go down. Now, did the Bucks get better by adding Drew Holiday? Yeah. Did they get better enough to continue, compete for the East without adding also Bogdan, Bogdanovich? I don't think so. So, you know, we were trying to to go through this as we were prepping the show tonight, just really looking at the East. And I have such high expectations, even though it's been a long time since we've seen Durant. I have high expectations for what we should expect out of Brooklyn, right? So now if they are the new sort of test, and Miami obviously feels like they uh, they built something that can continue to get there, you know, how does Giannis take the next step? And how do the Milwaukee Bucks as an organization take the next step, realizing that they're under all the pressure in the world? They did do what they told him they would do. They were aggressive, and they, they're willing to throw away their entire future draft-wise just to make themselves good enough right now today. So I love the aggressiveness with it. But without that extra piece, no, I don't think that, that makes them a championship team. So they unfortunately get some extra, but they don't get enough extra, in my mind, to not only contend for a title, but also 
to talk Giannis into sticking around because they'll be strapped on the cash. They won't have a lot of draft picks. Like, how do they get better than they are right now is not an easy question. Yeah, agreed. And even if Bogdanovich ends up there, you know, that still doesn't feel like enough. To what we see lately and the trend in the NBA of the number of stars that you need, even when one of those stars is transcendent like Giannis, it doesn't feel like enough. And I don't know if there's a if there's a stopgap sort of measure from Giannis where he doesn't want to deal with the questions all year long if he doesn't sign anything, right? That's a whole season worth of being asked every day, are you planning on sticking around? He might not want that, but he also might not believe that what they've got planned is going to be enough long-term to take on a, 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 a Nets team that's getting better. What happens with the Sixers and, and of course, t- the teams in the West that are so great. So um, I, I do think that maybe he'll say, what if I sign a year or two um, and then we revisit the long-term deal when I feel certain that we're putting together something that's really going to compete? Um, that's going to be up to, to Giannis, of course. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. The other uh, big question mark is around the Rockets and – James Harden appears dedicated to getting his himself out of there to the Nets, probably, although I have no idea what what the Rockets would get out of that deal and how it would be worth for them to trade a guy that has multiple years left who they've m- moved mountains to try to make happy. Um, and I, I don't blame them for digging in their heels a bit. This is a situation where they have time to try to change his mind or make the moves that he wants or at least look for a better deal. They do not need to feel pressured. They have the leverage here. Yeah, that's the one thing that I think is so compelling to me about contracts and negotiations. Like, the way each sport handles it and each fan base handles it is so different. Like, in in the NFL, if a player came out and said, I don't care about my deal, I'm not playing here till you trade me somewhere where I can win a Super Bowl right now, fans would absolutely lose their mind. In the NBA, it's become commonplace for the opposite to happen, right? Players, because everybody seems to gravitate towards players, if a player comes in and says, no, I don't don't really care what I've got on the deal right now, I'm also not going to take your $50 million a year, I want to go play somewhere with my buddies where I can win. I want to play in Brooklyn. The perception becomes that the Rockets now need to do this. Well, they don't. They do have time. They do have leverage. They do have opportunities. So if I'm the Rockets, I think they're handling it the perfect way. You come back and you say, okay, you want to get somewhere. We'll do our best if we find a deal that we love that suits us, that makes us better. And if I don't find a deal that makes us better, I guess you're just going to have to deal with making the amount of money you make to sit back and play for us. I I love the Rockets taking a stand, and it's also a reminder that funny money doesn't change the mindset of NBA players. They want to play where they want to play. It doesn't matter how many millions of dollars you can offer. Yeah, and I think also... Harden turning down that much money doesn't mean he wouldn't get close to that somewhere else. It might not be <laughs> yeah. $50 million a year, but it'll be close enough. And if he wants to win before he's done, if he wants to validate individual play with team success, he might not think that's a possibility um, where he is now and, and wants to try to use his considerable weight to try to get himself somewhere different. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. All right, I promised it to you. The only way that, look, we just know where we need expertise. And when it comes to actual point spreads and gambling on college football, we need expertise. We do this for you usually on Fridays. If you've never heard it before, make sure you check out the show. In the meantime, here is the Bear, Chris Felica, with some best bets for the weekend. Hey, everyone. Chris Felica, the Bear from College Game Day, back with some college football nuggets and a couple picks for the upcoming weekend. Uh, we're going to start with a rare total that I like uh, in Georgia, Mississippi State. Uh, I see the total of 44 and a half, 45, and uh, you might have missed it, but Mississippi State had 204 yards against Vanderbilt last week. And if this Georgia defense is still motivated, I, I think they're going to have uh, a hard time putting up any points on uh, 
on Georgia this week. So take a look at the, uh, that total. Mississippi State's defense has actually been pretty good as well. So I think Georgia's going to have some trouble scoring as well. 44.5 seems like a high, uh, high total there. Uh, San Jose State's been a great story, undefeated 4-0. But, but I think going on the road this week to Fresno State, uh, they're going to face an offense that can score with them. Uh, Jake Hayner, who's a Washington transfer, has been really good since struggling against Hawaii in the opener. Uh, I know they've beaten a couple of the worst teams in the league in UNLV, Utah State, Colorado State. But uh, I think their offense is going to give uh, the Spartans a, a good bit of trouble uh, this weekend. Iowa State is a double-digit favorite over Kansas State. Remember last year, uh, K-State really didn't do much offensively against Iowa State. That a kick return, Iowa State couldn't convert a third down. Purdy really struggled. So I, I think Iowa State, with the, the Big 12 title game uh, still in their grasp, should take care of business at home against the uh, uh, the Kansas State Wildcats this weekend. Uh, it'll be interesting this week, too, because you see K- uh, UCF uh, is, a, is a home underdog for the first time in 30 games against Cincinnati. That game obviously has a big uh, uh, factor in the uh, in the Group of Five college football playoff with New Year's Six standings. And then can Northwestern keep this uh, dream season alive? Uh, they've had a lot of success lately against Wisconsin uh, in, this, in, in this situation, so we'll see if the Wildcats can uh, continue winning with defense and turnover luck. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.